Well, good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to the letter of Philippians, chapter 3. We're going to be reading there in just a moment. Philippians, chapter 3, and verse 1. The title of this morning's message is Beware of Dog. Beware of Dog. You've seen those signs sometimes on somebody's yard fence just before you had to go in there for some reason, and it caused you concern. I want to have a contest this morning, a bad dog contest, okay? So let's do it this way. If you own a dog this morning, would you please stand? If you have a dog, we want to see who has the baddest dog in the 830 service, all right? Now, if, if I name a problem, and you're, there's a lot of dog people here. Um, if I name a problem and your dog does not have this problem, you have to sit down, okay? I'm going to name a problem. If they don't have the problem, sit down. Not coming when called. If your dog doesn't have that problem, you need to sit down. Not coming when called. If your dog has housebreaking problems, remain standing. But if your dog is housebroken, you need to sit down. Boy, okay, we still got some standing. If your dog has a barking problem, keep standing. If your dog has chewing problems, keep standing. We lost a few. If your dog has a problem jumping on people and things, keep standing. Wow. If your dog has a problem with jumping over or digging under fences, keep standing. If it, if it gets out, okay. If your dog has a problem of digging in the yard, keep standing. <laughs> There's no one left in the balcony. If your dog has a problem chasing cars, keep standing. If your dog has problems riding in the car, keep standing. Are you all related? Come up here, Gerald. Oh, <laughs> I want you to say that, I want you to know that there are different ways to train an animal. And one is by positive reinforcement. So this is a bag of begging strips. You can take it home, give it to the owners of the animals, Thank you. and you can train them. How's that? <laughs> of course, the other option is negative reinforcement, <laughs> and a rolled-up newspaper may help as well. Oh, our foot. Okay, I got that. <laughs> well, you know when a dog lives in your house and it has problems, it can make everyone miserable. We used to have a little dog, a little white miniature poodle, had papers. This was 20-something years ago. Had papers, was this fine animal that we got, miniature beautiful animal, so smart that it knew exactly what I was asking it to do and would do the opposite. And he was a little thing. We named him Calvin after the re reformer, 17th century, and uh, 16th century. And, and his name was Calvin. And whatever I asked him to do, he would do the opposite. We came home one Christmas, for example, and he had torn down the Christmas tree. He wasn't that, that big. The tree was six feet tall. He took it down, spread everything all over the place. 
and uh, was a constant annoyance. I cannot describe to you all the things that Calvin did. Uh, he even carried fleas in the house. We had to uh, fumigate all the carpets. But it was when one of the babies got a flea bite that Calvin was out of there. And, and I remember vividly, we found a good home for Calvin. And we, we took all Calvin's things, a couple of them, all Calvin's things to the new home. And we delivered Calvin to the brand new owners. And then Gail and I cried all the way home. And we laid awake that night. We missed Calvin. I don't know why, but we, we missed him. We felt like we'd given away one of our children. And I want you to know this morning that there are thoughts that we struggle with, even as believers, that can make our life equally as miserable and can derail our daily walk with God. The Apostle Paul in the early part of Philippians identifies at least five thoughts that we're going to call bad dogs this morning. Five thoughts that can make your life miserable and derail your walk with God. Look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. As Paul would go and start a church in a town, and he would stay there 12 months, 18 months, or two years. And the amazing thing is he would leave absolutely confident that God was at work and that that church would survive. But behind him were teachers who believed that in order to follow Christ properly, you had to observe the scruples and some of the details of Judaism including circumcision. And so Paul's pretty upset about that. He believes this completely undermines the message of the gospel, is absolutely a step backwards in terms of God's plan of salvation. And three times in this passage, he says, watch out. In the original language, he says it again and again and again. Watch out, beware, beware, and watch out. And he's saying that these people are three things. He calls them dogs. Beware of dog. These, in Paul's day and time, were not little, highly, finely tuned breeds like Calvin was. These were feral, wild animals that roamed the streets. They were filthy and dirty, and they would attack passersby if they thought they could do something with them. And it was common for zealous Jews to refer to Gentiles, non-Jews, as dogs. And so it's ironic that Paul would take the very word they used and apply it back to them. 
He said, beware of dogs. There's something about this that's unworthy of God. He says, beware of evil workers. They believed their efforts were good, and they put energy into it. And so they were workers, but they were evil. And then he says, these were people who mutilate the flesh. They taught that circumcision was essential to a right relation to God. But he doesn't use the word circumcision. He used the words mutilators of the flesh. And mutilation in the Old Testament was forbidden. To mutilate your body, to carve marks in your body, was forbidden in the Old Testament. It was a mark of pagan religion. Now, why does Paul say, beware of these dogs, of these evil workers, and mutilate the flesh? Because serving God for them was focused on what they were doing and not on what God was doing. So here's bad dog number one. Bad dog number one, look at me. We get the idea in our walk with God that, it, that I'm supposed to have be doing something so that God sees me or notices me. Here's the correction. Don't look at me. Look in me. Look in me. Now, Paul argues in verse 3 that we who know Christ are the ones who are truly circumcised. It's not a matter of something done physically to us. It's something that's done spiritually. It's a dramatic difference. He explains it in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Listen to what he says. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So he is saying that just like there were three descriptors for these, these dogs, these evil workers, these mutilators of the flesh, he gives three descriptors of those who have a circumcised heart, the true Jew, if you will. First, it's someone who worships or serves by the Spirit, not by the law, not by a written code, but someone who has been indwelled by the Spirit of God. They are the Christian. They are the one who's truly circumcised on the inside. And so that causes me to ask a question, even to myself. Do I worship out of duty? Or is there a desire in me that draws me to worship God? Is there within me an impulse to do the things that please Him? Is there a longing to know Him that stirs me? When I'm not reading Scripture, do I miss it? Do I long to know Him? Do I long to fellowship with Him? When I'm not with God's people, do I feel like I'm missing something? Not just the social element, but that companionship of the Spirit where in me the Spirit of God dwells and in that person, that brother and sister, the Spirit of God dwells. And God speaks to me and ministers to me through you and you minister to me. We are people of the Spirit, not of the law, Paul is saying. And it marks us and it separates us. There's a second marker of a circumcised heart. One who boasts or takes pride in or talks loudly, loudly about Christ. The person who is circumcised in heart is about Jesus talks about Jesus, is interested in what Jesus is doing in you, and wants to talk about what Jesus is doing in them. There's a third marker. 
the person of the Spirit is one who abandons all self-effort to secure and maintain a relationship with God. They're not trying to save themselves. They're resting in the finished work of Christ. Listen to verse 4. He says, although I once had confidence in the flesh too, I used to be like those guys. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so what Paul does next is he lists five substitutes for a real relationship with God. The first one is rituals. He says in verse 5, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. Circumcised the eighth day. And it was part of a whole religious scheme to identify yourself as a follower of God. But it didn't necessarily mean you were one. Paul says, I used to be like that. I used to think that stuff was important. I used to think you had to do church a certain way, that you had to walk with God a certain way, symbolically, through external activity, by observing certain customs. These are symbols of devotion. Church attendance, religious activity, the way we give, whatever your sacred cow is, the things that must not change, familiar ways of doing things. Our embrace of these things is no indication that we know Christ or that we belong to him. It's a substitute. Not only rituals, he mentions heritage. He mentions heritage. He says, I was of the nation of Israel, in verse 5, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He was a real Jew, and he had a distinguished lineage. He was raised as a Hebrew, not a Hellenist. He wasn't a Greek-speaking Jew. He was a Jewish Jew. He grew up in the Middle East. He grew up in the land of all the Jewish people. You talk to some people, and they'll immediately tell you what denomination they belong to if you ask them if they're a Christian. They'll say, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Presbyterian. And we'll say it the same way that some people in Paul's day were saying, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. My grandparents were members, my mother was a devout Christian, my daddy was a Christian. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. That doesn't mean you know Christ. Spirituality is not handed down from generation to generation by genetics. It's something that's passed along as each individual in each generation comes to hear the gospel and put their faith in Jesus Christ individually. Do you know Christ? Don't depend on your parents' relationship with him or your grandparents, but do you know him? Convictions is another substitute for a real relationship with God. Convictions. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. In, in his day, there were only about 6,000 card-carrying Pharisees, 6,000. It was an elite group. You could not be a Pharisee unless you had done some serious study, unless you had gone to school and studied under the right people. Paul had studied, studied under Gamaliel in uh, Acts 22. In our day, sometimes we spout our beliefs in the Bible and specific convictions that we hold and what it teaches as proof of our faith in Christ. It doesn't prove that we know Christ. You can know a great deal about the Bible. You can grow a great deal about doctrine. You can know a great deal about theology and not know him. I had a Greek professor at the University of Texas years ago. Even when I was in engineering, I was switching over to a ministry track. 
and, and I had a Greek professor, he had studied at Princeton, he had studied under Brutz Metzger and a bunch of different Greek scholars who helped put together the Greek New Testaments that seminaries use today. He knew Greek. And I could ask him, what does the Greek New Testament say about any particular doctrine? And he could tell me immediately. He knew it that well. He could quote large sections of the Greek New Testament. He was not a Christian. He admittedly would tell you he was not a Christian. He played the organ in a church but he was not a Christian. He was against Christianity. He opposed Christianity. But he knew the truth of what the Bible said. Enthusiasm does not mean you're a Christian. As to zeal, he says, persecuting the church in verse 6, willing to pay a price, willing to sacrifice, willing to do difficult things does not mean that you're a Christian and can be a substitute. Moral behavior. He says, as to the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Do you realize what a stunning statement that is? You go back and you read all those Old Testament laws. And he says, I was absolutely blameless. What is he saying? I kept all that stuff. I did it. I did it. The people he was writing to didn't do it. He said, I did all of that stuff. I went to the temple, I observed every feast, I kept every rule, every jot, every tittle of the Old Testament law. And later he came back, when he came to know Christ, he's reading Exodus 20, it said, thou shalt not covet. And he realized he'd broken that one. But as far as the outward things, the stuff people could see, I was blameless. No one could point a finger at me and say that I was immoral. But what's he saying? He's saying being a good person, keeping all the rules is no indication that you know Christ. He's saying all these things, these were substitutes for a real relationship to God. I did not know God, Paul is saying. There's another bad dog. Bad dog number two is I do things for God. Now, you say, well, I don't think that way. Have you ever gotten to a whining prayer mode? Anybody pray with a wine? Now, you wouldn't do that publicly, I know. But privately, have you ever said, God, I don't get it. I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And why do I get all these troubles? Do you, you, you recognize that prayer? <laughs> well, if you haven't prayed that prayer, you will someday. Bad dog number two, I do things for God. Here's the correction to that bad dog. The truth is God does things for me. It's not what I do for him. It's what he does for me. Christianity, true Christianity, is understanding that what God does has more to do with my salvation than what I do. Paul, for over 30 years, had been following Christ when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. And he makes several points here about his experience of God. And it wasn't about what he was doing for God. He said, for example, I held nothing back in reserve. I held nothing back in reserve. In verse 7, he says, but everything, all of these things, the rituals, the heritage, the convictions, the enthusiasm, the moral behavior, all these things that, that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. All this stuff I did, 
It wasn't what I was doing for him. All this, I consider it to be a loss. And he held nothing back in reserve. And the way he describes loss here, it's a business loss. He's moving from the profit side to the loss side in his ledger. Everything was moved over and this stayed on the other side. All that stuff in the past was not profiting me, was not helping me, did not add anything to me. It was not that. He didn't hold anything back, didn't hedge on anything, say, you know, if I get up there and I, he starts judging me, I'm going to say, well, Lord, do you remember that thing I did when I was a Pharisee? All of it was gone. It's not what I did, it's what Christ did for me. He also would say, I made no sacrifices. I made no sacrifices. In verse 8, he says, more than that, I also consider everything, literally all things, to be a loss in view of the surpassing value, which is the best thing, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He received something far greater than what he laid down. All this reputation, all of this education, all of this respect, all this adulation and praise that he received, everything that he did, he set it aside and he looks at it and he says, but I didn't sacrifice anything. And you know, as you look back through church history and you read the biographies of those men and women who walked with God, whether it was in a place like North America in another century or overseas, one of the earlier missionaries like a Hudson Taylor or somebody like that, if you were to stand them here and ask them, tell me about the sacrifices that you made, all the things you gave up, the comforts, the things that you could have uh, achieved if you had not followed God, all those things, why did you give it all up? Their answer would have been the same as Paul's. I never made a sacrifice. You know, if you sacrifice, that means you give more than you get. And he says, there's no sacrifice here. I made no sacrifices. The third thing Paul would testify to is that I have no regrets. I have no regrets. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them filth. <coughs> what is Paul saying here? Excuse me. You know, we moved this week and it's been dusty. So I got to do this. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to ask you a question about this. At this moment, how many of you are sentimental about this? I mean, would you like press it in your Bible or um, frame it, write something sentimental about it? You wouldn't do that, would you? You'd throw it away. You'd toss it away. You see what Paul's saying here? I consider them filth. That word filth is extremely strong word. King James puts it right, uses the word dung or excrement because that's what he's saying. All that stuff is just garbage. And the New American Standard, the NIV, the New King James Version, they use the word rubbish. And I just used a Kleenex. But the point is the same. We do not have attachments 
the trash. We don't get sentimental about things that we're throwing away. We let it go. And that's what Paul was saying about his past. You know, sometimes, I haven't heard one of these in a long time, but some of y'all old enough, you'll remember when we used to do testimonies all the time, and, and we would tell testimonies of our conversion to Christ, and we would tell, you know, if it was an hour testimony, we'd spend 59 minutes talking about all the incredible the incredible life I had before Christ where I had cars and, you know, whatever you think's incredible. <laughs> I had all this stuff. I had all these friends, all these people. And then I came to know Christ, gave all that up. And Paul's saying, that's hooey. That's a Greek word. <laughs> hooey. Has your mind been changed like this? That's what he's saying. It's not that I do things for God. It's that God does things for me. Bad dog number three. I lose. Having this mindset, these are all very similar, but bad dog number three, I lose. The correction, though, is I gain. Do you live with a sense that people without God are better off than you are? Do you carry with you a sense that you're losing out in this life and they are gaining? Or do you feel like you're always in the black, which is what Paul felt, always being greatly blessed? He had no sense of loss. Listen to what he says as he continues verse 8. I consider it filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. He's saying being good enough to please God is not a possibility. Why? Because he's already pleased. He's already pleased with you. Some of you walk around with a cloud of rejection over you, thinking God is always against you, always unhappy with you. But you are in Christ, and God the Father loves the Son. And everything true of Jesus in relationship to Father has become true of you. The righteousness of God and the goodness of God comes to you as a gift, not an achievement. Bad dog number four. Bad dog number four is I achieve for God. I do things for him. I achieve for God. The correction is I receive from God. It's been interesting. We, with six children, five of them are out of college now, and that's a good thing. And we've got one to go. And it's interesting, in that junior, senior year of high school, we would get these award letters in the mail. You have been selected. You know what I'm talking about? You have been selected out of all of the high school seniors in America to be initiated into the who's who family. And all of these other famous people did it too. And, and this award... It's yours. You're going to be in there, and all you have to do is send us $59.95 if you want the regular book, or $99.95 if you want the gold-plated book. It's an award that you have to pay for to get. That's not a real award, is it? Listen to verse 12. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already fully mature, but I make every effort, he's working, to take hold of it. Why? Why? Because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. 
Here's the Apostle Paul. He's on the road to Damascus. He's persecuting Christians. A bright light appears from the sky, and he's knocked to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, said the voice from heaven. Who art thou, Lord, Paul said. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? Lord, what would you have me to do? And at that moment, Paul was apprehended. Jesus was holding Paul. And everything he did, and the effort that he gave to it, was because Jesus held him. Not because he was trying to cling to God. When he captures you, your life changes. When he captures you, you work hard. When he captures you, you serve him and you love him with all your mind, your soul, and your strength. But why? Because he got you first. He holds you. He initiated the relationship. He sustains the relationship. He indwells us. He is the source of our strength. And the final bad dog is very similar. Bad dog number five. I hold on to God. That's the picture. I hold on to God. Here's the correction, though. God holds on to me. Some years ago, I saw a home movie. And um, I've shared some of my story, but my dad left when I was seven. And I didn't find him again until I was 27, my birth father. And so I only had the faintest childhood memories of him and only got to know him as an adult. But in one of those home movies I saw a number of years ago, it revolutionized my thinking about him. I was learning to ride a bike. They put that on that old Super 8 movie film on a roller and all that stuff. No sound. And it was clip after clip of me on that bike, riding, falling off, only to do it again. And eventually I got it. But I mean, I ran into the garage door. I ran into the fence. (laughs) No training wheels. Never had training wheels. Just a lot of crashes. But what I did not know, because I remember vividly learning to ride that bike. What I did not know is that my dad was behind the bike, holding on to the bike as long as he could. And as I I thought I was making all this progress, he was holding on to the bike. He was keeping it upright. He was keeping me from falling over. And when he thought I had it, which took a while, he would let go. And I'd go three feet, five feet, 10 feet, or maybe 20 feet, and then finally careen into something. But all that time when I thought I was doing it, when I was riding the bike, it wasn't me. It was my dad hanging on to that bike. And someday, those of us that know Jesus, we're going to see him face to face. There are going to be so many times where you and I look at the best moments of our life where we thought, man, we were doing the right stuff and we were on top of it and we had it all together only to discover that it was him that was holding on 
to us. When this bad dog thinking creeps into your mind, it truly can make your life miserable. I knew a lady one time that would wipe off her countertop. And it didn't look right, so she'd do it again. I'm not talking about your mama, Gail. And she, she would wipe it again. I think her mama wore the little gold dots off her counters. <laughs> but this lady was different. She'd wash the dishes. She'd get them out of the dishwasher. They weren't good enough. She'd have to do it again. And, and you know, we look at that today in our modern point of view, and we'd say, well, that lady had a problem. Well, sure she did. But you know what her real problem was? She thought she had to please God with her actions. It wasn't about obedience. It was striving to please him because it depended on her and her efforts. And some of you this morning, that's where you live. You need to understand that grace sets you free from that. That you can't add one thing, not a work, not an act of goodness, not an act of righteousness, nothing can you add to what Jesus Christ has already done for you through his life and his death on the cross and his rising from the dead. Only Christ has pleased the Father fully. And what he calls you and I to do and what he offers us in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is if that we will come like Paul and surrender all that we're hanging on to, give it all up, our efforts to be good enough, our efforts to please him, our efforts to be a new kind of person, give it all up and come to him with empty hands just as I am and put our trust in Christ. He takes you at that moment and he puts you in a way that I cannot explain fully on this side of heaven. He unites us with Christ and all of the goodness of Christ comes to you as a gift. The righteousness of Christ comes to you as a gift. The power of God comes to you as a gift. The spirit of Jesus who lived and, and gave him life and gave him direction comes to live inside of you. It is grace. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. And this morning, if you would like to place your trust in Jesus Christ, let me ask you to bow your heads all over the room and close your eyes. And if you have never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, a prayer for salvation might go something like this. And if you pray this from the heart, he will hear your cry. Father, I recognize this morning that I have been depending on myself and not on you for my salvation. I thought, Lord, that I could improve myself and make myself better. But I realized this morning that Jesus and only Jesus died for me. That he died for my sins. And that his life was the only life that ever pleased you. And so this morning, Lord, I ask you to forgive me for my sins. And I want to place all of my trust I simply want to come to you and trust you 
to save me. And I thank you for hearing my cry. For the rest of my life, Lord, I look forward to what you're going to do and how you're going to direct me. In Christ's name I pray, amen.